More Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website, www.deanbible.org. Or you may write to Dean Bible Ministries at 5868 Westheimer, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. That's 5868 W E S T H E I M E R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. We had a tremendous example of the application of that verse today. And I'm going to get into that in a minute as I update you on what's going on with Ulan and attempts to get him into a place of safety But we also need to be reminded, I think, because of some information that we also learned in the process of this, Isaiah 40:31, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. We need to remember that Jesus Christ controls history, and he is working things out according to his plans and purposes. As most of you know, we've been praying a lot for Ulan. Many of you have seen the letter. You've been out on the website, and you heard the announcement on Tuesday night. And he is still in Oslo. And this morning I received an email from him uh, giving some specifics about his location, that he has been assigned a uh, uh, refugee lawyer that they have there in, in Oslo. Then we continue to work various contacts, just pressing every door. It's a tremendous example of why it's important to keep asking people, keep networking, uh, follow the principle of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord, and, and He'll direct your paths. He'll make your paths straight in this. Uh, through a couple of different sources, we found out about two organizations. One is World Relief, and the other is an organization called Just Law. Just Law is a law firm in D.C. that specializes in getting Christians out of countries and into other countries. And World Relief does the same thing, and they'll do it through uh, you know, overt operations as well as covert operations. And a lady at World Relief, one of the workers there, has taken it upon herself to work with Ulan, and so she's emailed him for particular data. There is a... Uh, religious workers visa that uh, can be applied for for someone who, if, if there's a home church or a group of churches here in the states who will vouch for an individual and pay his salary where he'll come and work as a worker or missionary or something of that nature for two years that uh, that can be provided for him. There's some other routes, some other things that can go on. I'm not going to go into details. Uh, we're not sure which route is going to ultimately be efficacious, but at least it seems like we're somewhere on the target right now in terms of which way to go to uh, provide some sort of aid and sustenance uh, for him. So you need to continue to pray for that. In the course of all this, over the last couple of days, as we have faxed uh, letters and information and his letter to senators and congressmen and anybody we could think of who could do something, 
uh, in a conversation with people in Kay Bailey Hutchinson's office, uh, the information was given that, uh, have you heard uh, the latest news because related to immigrants coming in and that in Mexico they're selling, it's been now discovered they're selling Mexican visas and that there have been thousands of terrorists who have come in through Mexico and they caught one individual who had brought a truckload of 80 of these Iranians up from Mexico and they've caught eight of them. So because of the porous borders on our south and because of the failure of the federal government at every level to uh, follow its basic guideline, which is to protect this nation, uh, we have thousands of enemies within this nation who are poised to strike at the very heart of this nation in many different ways. And so we need to be uh, very diligent in our prayers, continuing to pray for the safety of this country, because as I have said for years, the only thing that secures this nation is the providence of God and the omnipotence of God. It has nothing to do with our security forces but God's plan and purposes. So we need to continue to pray, and we need to, I think, get involved at some level politically in just writing congressmen and senators and the president and whomever because this border issue needs to be addressed and politicians are just burying their heads hoping that somehow uh, it won't uh, fall apart on their watch. So uh, that's about all the politics I want to get into this evening. But we need to be reminded of a number of promises in Scripture from the Lord that no matter what happens, no matter how horrible or frightening things may appear, that the Lord is in control, and we need to continue to pray for Ulan. Also, uh, we have one individual, Wilson Pruitt, who is undergoing um, uh, gallbladder surgery in the morning, and apparently his health is pretty fragile to begin with, so this is a great concern of the family. They called me and asked for prayer uh, just before I left to come to class tonight. Let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we have you to turn to, that you are the everlasting rock, you are our shield, you are our fortress. These are not words but realities, that no matter how unstable things look around us, no matter how fearful or frightening, no matter how life-threatening, we know that you are the God who cares about us and who keeps us in your everlasting arms. Now, Father, we pray that you would... Watch over, continue to protect Ulan and Dinara and Alana. Provide uh, ways for them to get out. Give us wisdom as we work through various agencies and with individuals uh, to effect this uh, rescue. Father, we pray that you would uh, continue to give us all the resources we need to bring this about. Father, we continue to pray also for uh, Jim Myers as he leaves tomorrow along with Dick Mills to go down to Zambia and to... Uh, have a meeting with the president and 
the cabinet of Zambia, and we pray that you would give him wisdom as he addresses them. We pray for Wilson Pruitt and his surgery tomorrow, that you would watch over the surgeons in that surgery, and that you would comfort the family. Now, Father, we pray for this nation, for our president, for congressmen, for senators, for civil leaders and and, uh, military leaders, that you would give them wisdom, skill, insight into their jobs, that those whose responsibility it is to work on the security of this nation might have the insight they need to spot the trends, the people, the events that threaten this nation, and that you would continue to keep us secure Uh, Father, we stand as an aid and a source of strength to Israel, and we continue as a nation to send out missionaries to communicate the gospel and teach the word, Father. And we pray that for these reasons that you would keep us safe and secure, that we might continue to operate in these areas. We pray that as believers we might not take our Christian life lightly, but that we might be reminded that we live in a dangerous cosmos and that our very uh, lives are frequently threatened and our spiritual life is continuously under attack in the invisible war that surrounds us and that our only strength and sustenance is you and your word. And Father, we pray that we might uh, constantly keep this in focus. We just pray that you would challenge us this evening that we might gain fresh insight into your word and be reminded that you have an eternal plan and purpose for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Hebrews 1. Is there a sound problem? There is a sound problem. He has now, there we go, rule number one. If an electrical appliance doesn't work, plug it in or change the battery. That's all that That demon problem. Okay, after God spoke, in a, we're in Hebrews 1, 1. After God spoke in a variety of fragments and in various forms in time past to the fathers, by means of the prophets, he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. The contrast between verse 1 and verse 2 is the partial fragmentary revelation in the Old Testament to and through the Jewish prophets and to the Jewish patriarchs, in contrast with the full and complete revelation given through the Son. Now, even though the Son doesn't write and give us the New Testament, it is through His emissaries, the apostles, who are the foundation of the church, that we have the written Revelation, but the Son is the complete and full revelation of the Lord. That's the contrast. In the middle of verse 2, there's a shift. And the shift begins to talk about the significance of the Son. And there are seven things said about the Son. First of all, He is the one whom He has appointed heir of all things. Now, I want you to keep that first thing in mind because it's parallel to the last. We're going to look at the chiasm chart again in a second so you can see that parallel. This is the frame from the beginning to the end of this chiasm, this list of these seven things, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the ages or made the dispensations or through whom also he maneuvers or controls the dispensations. Who? 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who being one, the radiance of His glory, that is the outworking of His, of His essence, the exact image of His, of His nature, that should be nature, not person, the exact image of His nature, and three, upholding all things by the word of His power. That's the center of the chiasm, as we have talked about in the last two weeks. Then, after he, had made purif- made, after he had, by himself, made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is where we're headed. Look at the chiasm. The first A statement. Remember, in a chiasm, you have something like a, one side of an X, so that the center of the X is the focal point. The other statements function like a frame. So it's a literary device to focus our attention on something. The sun is contrasted with the Old Testament prophets in 1.1 to 2a. The sun is referred to as the messianic heir in 1 verse 2b. The sun's creative work is mentioned in 1.2c. He made the ages. Then the Son's threefold mediatorial relationship to God is the D statement. That's your, those are the three statements that He's the radiance of His glory, the exact image of His nature, and He upholds all things by means of the word of His power. That's the threefold mediatorial relationship to God. Then C prime is the Son's redemptive work, which we focused on last time, that He had by Himself Purged, that's the Greek verb katharismos, purified or cleansed our sins. He made purification, literally. He made purification of our sins. And then where we are tonight, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I call B prime the son as messianic king. Because that's the function that we'll see happens in relationship to this, uh, air sh- this statement of his sitting down. He is sitting down to wait for the kingdom. And this is the backdrop for understanding the whole book of, of Hebrews. I don't think anybody has brought that out. Some people have gotten close. And uh, in the studies that I've done the last two or three years, it just seems that several things have just really come together in, uh, in my own study and thinking on this, not that I'm having, uh, you know, an overly abundant insight into Scripture. I think a lot of people have hinted at this, but in my thinking at least, it just really seems to get focused and tight uh, on this particular issue related to the ascension and session of Christ. So the focus is on the Son as Messianic King, and then in the last verse of the introduction, we'll see that he is higher than the angels and he obtains an inheritance that's more excellent than they. And it's this whole idea of the son's inheritance that is the bullseye on the target of the message of Hebrews, that the son is given an inheritance. He hadn't realized it yet. It's still off in the future. But that, but he is the designated heir. And to give you sort of a, uh, let, let's say sort of a bird's eye view of this whole message. 
Jesus Christ is designated the Son of God. He is the Son of God. The theologians from the time of Nicaea have referred to this under that phraseology, the begotten or the eternally begotten Son. Now, people sometimes want to debate whether that's the best term or not. Uh, it is the, the theologically accepted term that's been used for 1,600 years of church history. I don't think we need to go back and really debate that and try to reinvent the wheel too much. It's clear within the Council of Nicaea and the Creed of Nicaea that when they talk about the fact that he is begotten, he is not made. It is not a birth term. It has to do with the fact that ten jillion, quadrillion years before uh, God ever uh, created a creature, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, was being continuously begotten by the Father. That is a term that expresses that father-son relationship. That that father-son relationship is inherent to their their uh, individual uh, personhood within the Trinity. That this concept of father, that the first person is father and the second person is son, is are are, are not. Um, what would I? What? How would I express this? They're not pragmatic terms that are related to the incarnation. See, the Son isn't the Son because He was born by the Virgin Mary. That relates to His humanity. He is the Son by virtue of His eternal relationship to the Father. He is eternally begotten by the Father. He is and always has been the Son of God. Now, there's a doctrine we're going to have to get into a little bit. So we see that eternally the second person of the Trinity is the Son of God. As the Son of God, He is higher than the angels, isn't He? As the Son of God, He has all power and all authority. But what we see in relationship to the ascension and session is that the second person of the Trinity is elevated at the ascension over the angels. He is given authority over all things. So if that authority and that power is His by virtue of His being the Son of God eternally, then when we talk about Him acquiring this position, it has to relate to a different sonship. It has to relate to a different sonship. And what He acquires in that other sonship, which relates to two titles, His being the Son of Man and the Son of David, because it relates to the Davidic covenant and the establishment of that eternal dynasty through David, that, uh, that we see this significance. As the Son of Man, He goes through His human life dealing with every problem, every adversity, everything He, quote, suffers. He passes the test qualifying him to go to the cross, but also setting the, uh, uh, setting the template, setting the example, setting the pattern for how we as church-age believers are to handle all the tests, trials, adversities, suffering that we encounter in life. Now, by virtue of his passing all of that, he gets designated the heir. He gets designated the heir. This is a technical term. And the heirship relates to the nations. We're going to look at this when we 
when we uh, uh, come back in the first part of uh, verse 5 and 6, that in Psalm 2.8, at the present time, he is to be praying to God. He is asking God for the inheritance, that the nations be given to him as an inheritance. So right now at the session, at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ is doing one thing that usually is never talked about. You ask people, what's Jesus doing right now at the right hand of God the Father? Well, he is our mediator. He is our advocate. He is our high priest. But he's doing something else. He is praying. He is asking the Father to give him the nations as his inheritance. So when we think of the session, we need to think of... Those other aspects of his priesthood, I'm not diminishing them, but they're related to this request that he's continuously making regarding his inheritance because he hasn't been given it yet. And if we follow the Lord Jesus Christ and become co-sufferers with him, as Romans 8 mentions, we suffer also with him, same word that's used in Hebrews 2, that, that we will co-reign with him. So this thing that's happening during the session related to his high priestly ministry toward us in our spiritual growth sanctification ministry, uh, our spiritual growth sanctification, our spiritual life, is directly related to what's going on in the session and ultimately in what happens when he gets his inheritance. And what he's doing is preparing us to rule and reign with him. Now, we understand all that. We've been taught this again and again. So I'm, going to, I'm coming at this with a little bit different perspective on this. And what, it, it, what this tells us is that Jesus Christ is building right now the leadership team that he is going to operate with when he returns in his kingdom. And that is part of this priestly ministry, because when we come back, we're seeing this in, in, in our study of Revelation on Sunday night, that when he comes back, we are going to reign as priests and kings. So we're in boot camp right now. We're in our basic training session for to develop capacity to rule and reign with him when he comes back uh, as the messianic king to take possession of that inheritance. So the book of Hebrews comes along, and the book of Hebrews keeps talking about the session. In almost every section, every division of this epistle, there is a reference to the ascension and session of Christ. Now, why is that? It's because that's foundational to the whole exhortation or challenge of this book to believers to persevere in the midst of testing and trials and adversity. Don't give up the faith. Don't relinquish doctrine. Keep making doctrine a priority in your life. Don't let the details of life crowd out in your scale of priorities and scale of values. Don't let... Uh, the pressures and adversities of life shift your priority uh, schedule so that you give up on your Christian growth and your forward advance because this is what is happening. The interesting thing is that in all of the New Testament, the only book in the New Testament that deals with the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is the book of Hebrews. 
Paul never mentions it, never develops it. It's nowhere in the Pauline epistles. John doesn't talk about it in any of his books. There are uh, various uh, allusions and references in Paul and John to heirship and inheritance and our future ruling and reigning destiny, but it is left under the guide, under the providence of God to the writer of Hebrews to really expound on the significance of this high priestly ministry. And I was just talking with um, Dan Ingram this afternoon or this evening on my way into Bible class and, uh, and telling him what, was, what the latest was on the developments with Ulan. And we were, started talking about, he started asking me, well, what are you teaching tonight? And I said, you know, this is so significant because every commentary you read focuses on uh, Christ is superior. That's the message in Hebrews. Christ is superior because Christ is superior. We're supposed to persevere. And the message to these Jews uh, in the first century is that they, they want to kind of fall back into the old ritual system. And usually it's it presented that the thrust of Hebrews is don't give up the ship and go back to Judaism because Jesus is superior to Judaism. And that is a major theme and thrust in this whole epistle. But we, we've got to factor in the significance of the session. This is central to understanding this whole argument in Hebrews and what the writer is trying to get across is what's happening with the session in relationship to the future inheritance and possession and how that needs to radically impact how you and I look at what we do every day. When we wake up in the morning, how do we envision the things that we're doing that day? Is it just going to work, going through the same old drill day in and day out that we normally do, go through the normal events of life? Or do we have a significant understanding of the fact that we are being trained uh, day in and day out to apply doctrine to situations so the Holy Spirit can build Christ's character in us so that we are then qualified and in the millennial kingdom to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. This is what that personal sense of your eternal destiny is all about. It is where the future becomes so real to you in terms of where you're headed that it changes your priority structure today and it changes how you look at what you're doing with your 70 plus years on this earth. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. So we're coming to this last section in verse 3, that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what is the significance of that particular phrase? Okay, let's skip ahead, skip through this slide. Hebrews 1.3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This comes after he himself made purification or after he himself uh, made purification or made the cleansing for our sins. The sitting down is not simply a, a, um, a sign of the completion of the work on the cross. It is that. But it is more than that. He is sitting down because he has to wait on something. And that comes out through a study of the doctrine of the ascension. Now, at the cross, he made purification for our sins. 
And that's the Greek word katharismos, which is related to the, the verb katharizo, the noun katharos, all of which relate to, these, to sanctification, to cleansing or purification, which is that what is necessary for fallen, sinful creatures to, to, to do in order to maintain fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting in all of this, I just love it when God's plan starts to come together in a lot of interesting ways uh, as a teacher, as a pastor. Uh, some of you know this, some of you don't, but I was asked to teach Old Testament Survey next year, College of Biblical Studies. So starting in September on Thursday mornings from 9.30 to 12.30, I'm going to be teaching through the Old Testament over there. And so I'm starting to work on my notes, and I'm going back. And, and one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was it just the good discipline for me to force myself through the Old Testament books. And one of the Old Testament books I have to teach is Leviticus. And Leviticus is also foundational to Hebrews. I remember uh, about 20 years ago not being able to take an elective at Dallas Seminary on the book of Leviticus, and a friend of mine taped it, and then when I wanted the tapes, he'd... Ten years later, he had lost them. But I always wanted to teach a series combining Hebrews and Leviticus. And so I've been cranking my way through Leviticus this week, and one of the key issues in Leviticus is sanctification. And what's so interesting, and I never realized this uh, until just last week in this, and I've, I've done a lot of study on this, and last time, remember, I w- went to the Old Testament to show that the the Hebrew word kafar, which is the word for atonement, this is the, this is the word, K-P-R, K-A-P-H-A-R. Usually it's translated cover. That's just the standard uh, term, and in some cases it probably has that idea. But what modern... Studies have indicated through the use of comparative linguistics as we go to especially Akkadian to, to see the parallels, the etymological parallels, that the word kafar probably has the meaning of rubbing out or cleansing, purification, that this is probably the main idea and kafar is usually translated in the Old Testament under the word atonement in English. But what's really fascinating about this particular word is that for the most part, when the Jewish translators who took the Hebrew Masoretic text and translated it into the Septuagint, when they made the translation, they translated kafar with the katharizo word group in terms of cleansing. Now, we think of cleansing primarily in terms of post-salvation cleansing from sin. And that's what you see again and again and again in Old Testament symbolism is that the priest has to cleanse himself when he washes his hands and his feet at the laver before he goes into tabernacle service. And a number of the sacrifices are said to be cleansing. And if you start with Leviticus 1, the first offering is a burnt offering. And we often tie a burnt offering to salvation, and it is used in the New Testament as that picture. It is used in the New Testament as that picture, 
But one of the other, uh, one of the things we have to realize is that when this is written in Leviticus chapter 1, it's talking to Israel as an already redeemed nation. Think about that. That the main thrust of these sacrifices, some of which we think of primarily as being salvation related, are sacrifices that are giving to a nation that's already being viewed as a redeemed nation. So that what this indicates, as much as anything, is not simply cleansing at salvation, but post-salvation cleansing. And even the Day of Atonement is a Day of Atonement that is to be observed by whom? By an Israel that's still in slavery in Egypt? Or an Israel that's been redeemed from slavery in Egypt? You see the significance here? So modern studies are bringing out dimensions of these words that give us a whole new insight. And I think it's not just something brand new, but when we go back and we see that that the uh, 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 ancient Jewish scribes 200 years before Christ were translating this as a cleansing, which we think of as post-salvation sanctification concept, that, that maybe that's the main thrust of these, these sacrifices. Now, that's not to take away the, from the fact that they also have a phase one salvation uh, impact as well or message. They serve double duty because we're cleansed twice, aren't we? Well, actually, more than that, but there's two types of cleansing. There is the salvation cleansing that takes place at the instant of faith alone and Christ alone when we are positionally cleansed. And then there is the second category of cleansing, which is the ongoing uh, second category of cleansing, the ongoing sanctification or experiential sanctification cleansing that takes place. So when the writer of Hebrews starts here, he reminds us that he by himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, made purification for our sins. Once that's accomplished, then he moves to stage two in his plan, waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of that inheritance promise. And he sits down at the right hand of the Father. The Greek word there is the aorist active indicative of kathizo, which means to sit down or to take one's seat. It is a passive position. He is not actively ruling. He is not on the throne of David. This is clear from uh, Revelation chapter 3. I think it's uh, towards the end where he says that the overcomer will sit with him on his on his throne. Verse 21, Revelation 3:21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, not David's throne, on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So when he says this, let me back up and re- correct what I just said or clarify it. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, that is, my throne in the millennial kingdom. Even as I also overcame and sat down where? With my Father on His throne. So you see, the present sitting of Christ is not on the Davidic throne. All millennial theologians see it as the Davidic throne. Uh, This new 
progressive dispensationalism that's come out of Dallas Seminary, Talbot, and other places sees Jesus is sitting on the Davidic throne right now in heaven. Now, what the, that's why we get so upset about this as traditional dispensationalists who believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture is because that's not interpreting Scripture literally. And these progressive dispensationalists are beginning to interpret these passages in the same allegorical, symbolic way that amillennialists have historically said this. That's why uh, Bruce, Dr. Bruce Waltke, who was at Dallas Seminary many years ago, then both left Dallas and left, uh, and you know, he just kind of traveled through various theological systems over the years, and now he's a five-point Calvinist, amillennial theologian teaching at the Reformed uh, Theological Seminary. I don't know, I think he's teaching at Knox. It's hard to keep up with him. Maybe now he's at Knox. But when he first read this stuff on progressive dispensationalism, he says it's not progressive, it's not dispensational, it's just covenant theology. So you see, this is sort of the camel's nose problem uh, when you come to places like Dallas Seminary and others is even though they on the one hand they're saying well we're still dispensationalists by shifting in how they interpret scripture they're allowing a uh, they're they're, begin, they're, they're in acting and interpreting their, their the scripture like they're holding to a different system ultimately what that's going to do is destroy dispensationalism at Dallas Seminary now back to our passage Let's look at the ascension in session. Let's start reviewing that, going point by point through the doctrine of the ascension in session. The ascension took place 40 days after the crucifixion of Christ. The central passage is in Acts 1, 7 through 10. Acts 1, 7, And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. They had just asked the question, Are you, Is the kingdom coming now? Is this the time? See, Jesus doesn't say, You dummies, it's going to be spiritual. I'm going to heaven and we're going to have a spiritual kingdom. He says it, he doesn't correct their understanding that the kingdom is yet future. He says, no, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Now, we have seen that Paul uses this same phraseology, times and seasons, when he writes to the Thessalonians and says, now, you have already been taught about the times and the seasons. So what that tells you is somewhere between Acts 1-7 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, they were taught, the church has been taught about the times and the seasons. They've been taught about the rapture. They've been taught about uh, the dispensation of the church age. But at this instant, right before the ascension of Christ, it wasn't the right time for them to know. So he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now what's getting ready to happen? Jesus is getting ready to leave, isn't he? This is his final statement to the disciples and it's wait here till the holy spirit comes and then you shall be my witnesses uh in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth or the end of the earth and so this gives a mission statement to the church 
as a whole body down through the generations that we are to. They started in Jerusalem, then there was persecution, and they got scattered, and they went to Samaria and to Judea, and then there was more persecution. And then uh, with the Apostle Paul and Peter and others, they began to go to the outermost part of the earth, and we're still doing it. Now, when he had spoken these things, his final uh, marching orders to the church, while they watched with their mouths hanging open, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, these are two angels now addressing the disciples, and they're standing there with their mouths hanging open, figuring out what just happened, that they just saw Jesus physically and bodily take off through the, through the sky, said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner, key word, in like manner, as you saw him go into heaven. Now this took place on the Mount of Olives, which is the background picture of the slide. He's going to come back in the same way. He left in a physical way. He will return in a physical way. He left in resurrection body. He will return in resurrection body. He left identified as the individual Jesus of Nazareth. He will return that way. He, he, he did not. Uh, he's not returning as the Holy Spirit. He is not returning as uh, in some uh, uh, cloud of judgment, as preterists argue that happened in, in uh, 70 A.D. when uh, 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 Judah was, Judea was taken out under the fifth cycle of discipline. He's going to come back to the same place, to the Mount of Olives, and then he's going to move from the Mount of Olives through the East Gate and into Jerusalem, and then he will take his place as the Davidic king. So he's going to come back in the same way. So when we look at this, we see a major shift in what appeared to be God's plan from the Old Testament. So we have to um, uh, answer certain questions. First of all, why did Christ have to ascend at all? Why didn't he just go up into heaven and come back with an angelic army and establish his rule? Why didn't he just uh, establish his rule without leaving? I mean, the angels could just appear and he could establish his rule. Why did he have to leave? What's going on here? Why not just begin the kingdom? Second question, why did Christ have to ascend before sending the Holy Spirit? There's this direct relationship indicated in John 16:7 when Jesus said, I have to go to the Father before I can send the Spirit. Now, that really ought to set off all kinds of bells and whistles in the back of your mind if you're paying attention. Because this tells us there's something unique happening here in relationship to the Holy Spirit. And when we come to this from our dispensational orientation, automatically we should, we should recognize certain things are going on here that we can only explain dispensationally. That's why nobody really has done much in terms of tapping the significance of, of the uh, session of Christ in the ways that uh, we're doing that is because you, you can't see these things if you're not approaching the Scripture from a premillennial, pre-tribulational, dispensational framework holding to a consistent, literal interpretation of Scripture. Uh, third question, why did Christ have to ascend before giving spiritual gifts? 
Ephesians 4 emphasizes that, that he gives these leadership gifts. Now the only ones that survive are pastor, teacher, and evangelist. Why did he have to ascend before he gave those? Those gifts function in relation to this ascent of Christ and his session. So that's the fourth question. What's that connection? All of this is explained and understood when we see how this whole thing fits together. Now, I have, and some of you have heard me, uh, gone through this in detail. I'm not going to go through every uh, nook and cranny of this doctrine in the next, either in the next ten minutes or in the next two weeks, because we're going to see it again and again in, in Hebrews as we go through. So I'm going to unpack it gradually as we go through, especially the next two or three verses. But to, to the rest of tonight... And the next class, now remember, in light of the other events at the beginning of class, I forgot to make sure you remember there is no Bible class next week. Next Tuesday night, next Thursday night, no Bible class. Sunday night there's Bible class, but not on Tuesday and Thursday because uh, White Oak Baptist is having their uh, summer vacation Bible school and they need the auditorium and the other buildings, so we don't have a place to meet. So we get a break next week and you can review your notes and uh, take time to try to assimilate some of these things. But we'll be back in two weeks, and that's when we will complete this sort of summary and overview of the importance of the session. So let's start with the first point on the ascension and session. The Jews at the time of the first advent expected a one-coming Messiah. They didn't anticipate a dual advent. Now, we talk about first advent, second advent. Jesus came the first time when he came at the incarnation and when he was born in the manger in Bethlehem, and he will return a second time when he returns in glory to establish his kingdom at the end of the tribulation. We understand that, but if you were a Jew living in 50 B.C. or 10 B.C. or 5 B.C., you were thinking that there were, the Messiah was going to come and establish a glorious kingdom and somehow redeem the world in terms of sin, but you just thought of one coming. And that shaped your, your understanding so that it was, when, when Jesus did start teaching as if he, that he was going to die and then come back, they had a difficult time with that. Even John the Baptist has to send his disciples to Jesus and say, Are you the guy? Now think about that. Now just stop a minute. Here's John the Baptist. He's a cousin. You know, he is is miraculously born as well because his mother was uh, one of those six barren women in the the, uh, Scripture. And she gives uh, birth to him as a result of an angelic visitation. And then uh, she's not... uh, impregnated by the angel, but as a result of that announcement by an angel, she's told that she's going to give birth to a child, or actually the father was told that he would uh, father a child, and that would be John. And she is a cousin, his mother Elizabeth is a cousin of Mary's. And she is uh, pregnant a few months before Mary is. And so from the time of his birth, he would have been told that he's got a special role in the kingdom plan of God to announce the Messiah. And then when Jesus, his cousin, comes down to the Jordan, he sees him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And he baptizes Jesus in that baptism. The heavens open, and he hears the voice of God say, Behold, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And he saw the literal, physical, three-dimensional dove, which is the Holy Spirit, appear and come and settle over Jesus. And he's seen all of this. And then when Jesus starts talking about the fact that, no, the kingdom's not going to come now, I've been rejected, it's going to be postponed, he is so confused, he's got to say, are you really the guy? Did I just make a mistake? Now, that's hard for us to factor, isn't it? But he he gets really confused there, and, of course, Jesus uh, eases his anxieties. But the Jews expected a one-coming Messiah. They had confused the cross and the crown. They wanted the crown before the cross, the glorious Messiah, before the suffering Messiah. But the Bible was teaching, and when you go back and in hindsight we see it clearly, that he had to suffer before he could reign, that he couldn't bypass the cross and go directly to the kingdom. That's what Satan wanted him to do. That was why that was a temptation when Jesus goes into the wilderness and after fasting for 40 days and he is in a state of physical weakness, he's tired, he's hungry, uh, he is fully aware of what he's going to go through in terms of the cross. And Satan comes along and says, I'll give it to you. You don't have to go through the suffering. See, that's a key word that we're going to see in Hebrews. And suffering does not necessarily mean that you're physically beaten down. It means that you're going through adversity testing of some kind or another where you have to apply the word. And so uh, Jesus is given that opportunity to just bypass the cross. But he does not do that. He passes the test. First Peter 1, 10 and 11 indicates that the Old Testament prophets in verse 1 understood that, one, the sufferings of Christ, and two, the glories to follow. But the, the Old Testament taught that, but the Jews didn't appreciate that. They just saw that one coming, and they didn't make that distinction. If they had made that distinction, they might have wondered why. See, then, then, and, and, if, and that's one reason why the church age wasn't revealed. The church age isn't revealed in the Old Testament because the Jews would have had some indication of their own failure. So this means they have a real legitimate choice to accept the Messiah when he came, and the kingdom could have come in when Jesus Christ offered it to them. But we know that they didn't. See, God has real contingency in his plan. So the kingdom was presented. There was the, and you see this pattern in all the Gospels, at least the synoptics, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's the offer of the kingdom from the incarnation to, through about the end of his second, uh, second year. There's the offer of the kingdom, and then there is this rejection of the king that crystallizes in the Pharisees accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. And Jesus calls that the, the, uh, uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not simply denial that Jesus Christ is your Savior. You can't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit today. It was a historically conditioned sin. I believe it was historically conditioned to that time only. The Jews rejected Him 
And that was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, it, and in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus spells out that there are serious consequences, and that's what happened in, uh, in A.D. 70, is that Israel goes out under the fifth cycle of discipline. So he begins the ministry with the offer of the kingdom. There's a rejection of the king, and this leads to the crucifixion of the king. Understanding this is foundational to understanding everything related to the session and inheritance and your spiritual life. We just can't escape it. This is foundational. Now, I know that there are some people that when we get into this study, it just really brings in so much that your head starts spinning. And that's why you have to hear it again and again and again. I've taught this now. This is going to be about the sixth time. Each time I can synthesize it a little better. But each time I go through this, it's sort of like the Lord taking out a two-by-four and hitting me upside the head with it to get my attention on a few things. And it just opens up so much in terms of understanding the spiritual life today and what's going on. This is why prophecy is important. Prophecy has to do with what the end goal is, what's going to happen tomorrow, that is, eschatologically speaking, not literally tomorrow, the 2nd of June, but tomorrow in terms of the next age or dispensation. And when we get a clear fix on that in our head, then it begins to change the way that we live today. I think that, to to use an extremely mundane example, those of you who struggle at times with the extra pound or two, and yet you just find it such a struggle to not get that dessert or eat that pasta or whatever it is, you know, if we had a clear vision of what we would look like if we stuck with that diet for six weeks or three months, it would be a lot easier to exercise that discipline in the meantime. And once I found that once you get that really set in your head, it makes it a lot easier. And that's the idea here, is that as a believer, if you just get a real solid mental picture of what's going to happen after you die and what your eternal destiny is, then it just really focuses you on what you're doing right now. And a lot of the mundane issues in life that we get so bent out of shape over and spend so much time uh, being distracted with just disappear. And then we come along and we see something like what has happened to Ulan, and it just makes us realize that we just spend a whole lot of time on things that are really not essential. So we have to understand this kingdom issue. Third point. John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples all proclaimed a message about the proximity of the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom as is at hand. This isn't a salvation message. This isn't a salvation message. They had a salvation message, but this is a message related to Israel's basic orientation towards life. They were legalistic. And they're being told, you have to straighten up, change your mind, become grace-oriented, or the kingdom's not going to come. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's being offered. All these guys had that message. John said in Matthew 3, 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Again, and uh, Matthew 4.17, from that time, the time of his baptism, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, the disciples are sent out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 10.6, and they are to preach the message, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice, not to the Gentiles, but to Israel. What do you think's going on? The kingdom of heaven is the crucial, crucial message. And then point number four, at the midpoint of his ministry, the Jewish religious leaders reject Jesus as Messiah, and that leads to the postponement of the kingdom. Now, that sets us up for understanding the ascension. Jesus has to ascend. The kingdom's being postponed. And what's happening right now during the session has to do with the preparation of what's going to happen then. Now, next time I'm going to finish these as summary points, and we will tie in Daniel and we'll die, uh, Daniel 7, and we'll tie in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 also sets us up for uh, Hebrews 1.5, which is a quote from Psalm 2. So we're just going to set up a whole lot of background here in the next couple of weeks, and it opens up what is happening in this first chapter of Hebrews and helps us to understand what the Lord is doing right now. And I hope that has a tremendous impact for you. Uh, let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Again, we pray for Ulan, for strength, for guidance, for those who are working to effect his uh, secure release to here or to Europe or wherever where he can be safe, preventing him from having to return uh, to the horrible situation in Kyrgyzstan. Father, we pray for us that we would be responsive to the challenge of the Holy Spirit on the basis of the things that we have learned this evening. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.